6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 36 through 39. Even in the English translation, you can see the adrenaline start in Daniel. You can feel his pulse quicken, and the way you see it is the frequency of the herbs. Daniel almost comes unwound when he's interrupted by Gabriel to give him the prophecy. And if you read that, even in the English, uh, you, can, you can just feel the throb of the Hebrew. Here's Hezekiah talking to the God of the universe. Incline thine ear, O Lord, open thine eyes, see, hear the words, and so forth. Verse 18, For of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their countries, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of man's hands, men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. That's quite a prayer. That's quite a prayer. God is very jealous of his reputation. God is very jealous of his name. There's only one thing he puts higher than his name. God puts his name very high. There's only one thing I know from the scripture that he puts higher even than his name. You know what that is? His word. You got it. I think it's Psalm 136 or 38, somewhere near. It's, anyway, and what you're holding is then something that is, that's the definition of truth. When the word and the deed become one, what God says, he's going to do. <laughs> I love it the way Yul Brenner rendered it in the movie. So let it be written, so let it be done. He said he's going to do it, he does it. And we're going to see much of that happen in our own, in the next month, few months, few years, as we really understand the prophetic scenario. Okay, save us from his hand and all the kings of the earth that may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. Verse 21, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Whereas thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib the king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high? Even against the Holy One of Israel. By thy servants hast thou reproached the Lord, and hast said, By the multitude of my chariots am I come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and I will cut down the tall cedars thereof, and the choice fir trees thereof, and I will enter into the height of its border and the forest of its carmel. I have digged and drunk water, and with the sole of my feet have I dried up all the rivers of the besieged places. Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it, and of ancient times that I have formed it? Now have I brought it to pass that thou shouldest be to lay waste fortified cities into ruinous heaps? Therefore, their inhabitants were of small power. 
They were dismayed and confounded. They were like the grass of the field and like the green herb and like the grass on the housetops and the grain blighted before it has grown up. But I know thy abode and thy going out and thy coming in and thy rage against me because thy rage against me and thy tumult are come up into mine ears. Therefore will I put a hook into thy nose and a bridle in thy lips and I will turn thee back by the way by which thou camest. God is laying it on. It's interesting the phrase he uses here is very similar to the phrase he uses through Ezekiel talking about Russia, Magog. I'll put hooks in thy jaws, the same idea. In both cases we're talking about a very harsh bridle for a, a hard-to-control horse, analogous to a hackamore or something that you may be familiar with, or maybe even more severe. I'll put a hook in thy nose and a bridle in thy lips, you see. It's, a, it's the same, uh, same kind of a metaphor being used here. Verse 30. And this shall be a sign unto thee. Ye shall eat this year such as groweth of itself, and in the second year that which, that which springeth up of the same, and in the third year sow, reap, and plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before, with it, before it with shields, nor cast a bank or siege tower against it. A bank is analogous. Is, is several ways to scale a wall. One is a, the Roman siege tower was one approach, or just actually building a causeway is another. At the point, that's what he's talking about. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. But notice the reason he does this. I love verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Not yours, Hezekiah. Not the people. Not the, he doesn't say they don't merit it. That's a very key idea. He's doing it for his own sake. That's what's so interesting to me as I watch Rabshakeh and I realize he went too far. I'm sure the Lord would have defended them anyway. But when Rabshakeh says, hey, makes it an issue of the God of Israel, boy... That, that draws the line, doesn't it? It's interesting to notice, you might pause and look at Ezekiel 36. We're so fond of studying the Magog and Ezekiel 38 and all that, because that, that isn't far away, <laughs> for a lot of reasons. When we see the five uh, Central Asian republics spin out from the Soviet Union that are Islamic and short of cash and have nuclear weapons. We can just see it all start to happen. I do believe they'll be the hooks in the jaw. But the point is, in Ezekiel 36, he says a, God says a similar thing that's worth our realizing. Because we're going, to very, we're going to be very busy watching Israel and watching the news and watching the tensions on the global scene. Our fascination for what God is doing doesn't need to go to necessarily supporting Israel's policies. Don't misunderstand that. Well, you got your Bible nuts are pro-Israel. In a sense, we are, and yet in a sense, we're not necessarily. Don't misunderstand. Notice what Ezekiel says here in chapter 36, verse starting with verse 21. God says, But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel hath profaned among the nations to which they went. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God. There's that phrase again. I do not this for your sakes... Interesting phrase. I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, 
which ye have profaned among the nations to which ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the nations, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all, all countries, and will bring you into your own land. What's interesting here is that the reason God intervenes in the Russian invasion of Israel is because he said he would and his reputation is on the line. All the world knows that God is committed to interrupting that intrigue on the part of the Islamic elements coming against Israel, backed by the Russians, as Ezekiel described 2,500 years ago. And that's going to happen any time. Next month, next year, can't predict, but it's ready to happen. And when it does, God has got a real surprise. Why? Because to protect Israel? Yes, but not for that reason. It's because his reputation's on the line. He said he would. I said it. I'm going to perform it. Same kind of flavor here in my mind that through Isaiah, God says to Hezekiah with regards to his particular adversary. And so we have the Assyrians camped around the city of Jerusalem. And then one night after dinner, <laughs> verse 36, the angel of the Lord went forth and smote the camp of Assyrians. 185,000. When the men arose early in the morning, behold, these were dead. And it really fascinates me because we don't know how many there were. It doesn't say he wiped them all out. Quite the contrary. There's a bunch that woke up in the morning and found all their buddies slaughtered. And not a few. You and I, I've been in military operation. I can't imagine 185,000 troops. I've been in a lot of operations. But that's a bunch. I mean, that's a bunch. You get a regiment of much smaller than that. It's impressive. You got 185,000. Even in modern terms, that's, that's enormous. And it wasn't all of them. I don't know if it was a third, a half, what the number was. But it was enough to make an impression. Because they split. Enough's enough. Let's go home. Interesting thing. You don't mess around with angels, do you? Verse 37. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelled at Nineveh. <laughs> he didn't even go to Lachish. He went all the way home. He went to his capital. He went to Nineveh. And he must have been shook. Not nearly as shook as he's about to be in the next verse. It came to pass as he was worshiping at the house of Nisroch, his god that Adramalek and Sharezer, his sons, smote him with the sword. And what a, what a blow. It's bad enough to be assassinated, but by your own kin, by your own sons. That must have been a scene. Two of his sons, his third son takes over. These two sons smote him with the sword, and they escaped in the land of Erech. Now, by the way, there's all kinds of conjectures about his sickness. We'll discover in verse 21 of this chapter, Isaiah said, let them take a lump of figs and lay it for a plaster upon the boil. He apparently has boils. And uh, in Exodus chapter 9, it was the sixth plague of Egypt. It was a plague of boils, very serious ones. In uh, Leviticus 18, we find this term uh, used of what apparently was a leprous ulcer. Some scholars think this was a severe form of leprosy we're dealing with here. Um, in Deuteronomy 28, it's called the botch of Egypt. So there's a, there's a linguistic link that ties us, perhaps, to ties us together. And of course, in Job chapter 2, we have the description of his 
uh, a horrible predicament that's very analogous to some extent to Hezekiah's situation. And Hezekiah here is sick unto death. It's the end of it. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him, said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. That's a little hairy, isn't it, huh? Doctor tells his patient, you got six months to live, and the patient says, I can't pay your bill. He says, no problem, I'll give you another six months to live. No, bad, bad, I'm sorry. Bad, okay. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord. Now, that may have been his way to signal he wanted privacy. And, uh, but that's conjecture. Um, and prayed unto the Lord. And he said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee how, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, and I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years. Now, this is a strange issue, because it would seem from this part of narrative that that was unilaterally, voluntarily on God's part. And yet there's other indications that he asked for that and got it. There's a little subtlety there. You might turn to Psalm 106, verse 15. And some of these things I've given you the comfort of an assertive position. I may not be right, but I'm usually assertive. In this case, I'll leave you with some ambiguities to think through yourself. In Psalm 106, verse 15, there's a passage in the psalm. It says, And he gave them the request, but sent leanness into their soul. And we're going to discover that Hezekiah got his 15 years, but it's not clear it was a good idea. Because they weren't good years. There's some very interesting provocative issues to mull over on this whole issue. And by the way, the other overtone that some scholars point out, I'm not sure I agree with it, but is that this particular sickness to death may have been intended as a mark of divine displeasure for some reason. And that adds another coloration to the, to the narrative here. In any case, God says, I'll add to your days 15 years, verse 6, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city, and it shall be a sign unto thee from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he hath spoken. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees which has gone down in the sundial of Ahaz 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees by which degrees it was gone down. Now, incidentally, in the narrative account in Second Chronicles 32, what actually happens in more detail is Isaiah, who is the communicator to Hezekiah, says, God will do this thing. What would you rather have? Would you rather have the degrees go forward or backward? And Hezekiah thinks, see, going forward is easier. Let's have it go backward. And so Isaiah says, no problem. And what God does, he moves the shadow of the sundial 10 degrees backwards. Now, and everybody gets all hung up, and gee, how did God do that? Well, somehow moving the shadow of a sundial doesn't, you know, uh, there are a lot of things that bother me in the scripture. That ain't one of them, okay? The implication that the earth slowed down is not necessarily required. You can change the angle of precession and cause that. And uh, there is some evidence. See, all calendars we discover changed in 701 B.C. at this time. And uh, uh, the writings of uh, uh, Patton, Hatch, and Steinhauer and others that have gone into this business of the Mars orbit thing pointing out that uh, most of the Bible, biblical catastrophes seem to be 108 years apart. 
or multiples thereof, and that the Mars and the Earth had a synchronous orbit, 360 days for the Earth and 720 for Mars, and this involved near passbys on March uh, 25th and, and uh, October 25th. That's why Halloween and all that, because anyway, the point is that Mars had near passbys, and that caused all kinds of ancient history issues. And this is documented in some very bizarre kind of ways. Um, talk a little bit about it, I guess. I can, it's working in here. The conjecture is that uh, Mars was on a, we, we, we've discovered a principle the, the, one of the writers by the way teaches celestial mechanics at Harvard the, the idea of orbital resonance just as tuning forks can resonate orbits interact with each other and have, there's a tendency for them to influence one another and the conjecture was is that there was a time when Mars and Earth had were in synchronous orbits and in these near passbys there's an energy transfer the one that leads gives up energy the one that follows and that causes perturbations the last one of these near passbys was in 71 BC what makes the thing kind of interesting, on these near passbys, Mars appears to have passed very close, relatively close to the Earth. And that's one of the things. This comes up in the long day of Joshua. And those of you that are interested in studying this can get the tapes on the long day of Joshua because we go into it in some depth there. What makes this conjecture more than just a conjecture is that um, is the documentation we discover in Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Now you may say, well, wait a minute, what's that got to do with anything? Jonathan Swift was an Irish satirist, and he wrote some satire on the politics of London. They've been handed down through the years as children's stories. We talk of Gulliver's travels, and you all know the first voyage of Gulliver. The, Gulliver visits the land of the Lilliputians, the little people. The third voyage of Gulliver records Gulliver's, uh, uh, and of course these are just fantasies written by Jonathan Swift for political satire purposes. But Gulliver visits the land of Laputa, where the astronomers in Laputa brag that they know about the two moons of Mars, and the astronomers in London know anything about it. Well, what, and, and they go on to talk about, in the narrative of Jonathan Swift, there's the equations, the famous Kepler, Kepler equations of, of the, um, the ratio of the square roots and all that. But um, it also has the rotation and the size and the periods of these two moons of Mars. Now, what makes this rather interesting is that Jonathan Swift published Gulliver's Travels in 1726. The two moons of Mars were not discovered until 1877, when Asaph Hall, using a brand new telescope at the U.S. Naval Observatory, made astronomical history by discovering the two moons of Mars. They're very hard to find. They're only about eight miles across. They have an albedo of less than 3%. That is a reflectivity. They're almost black. And um, they're not very large. And also, one of them happens to be counter-rotating. Uh, and uh, it's an exception to the general practice of the solar system. And all this is in, John all this is in Jonathan Swift, 151 years earlier. And uh, did the astronomer? The astronomers knew for sure there was no two moons of Mars. I mean, the astronomical history makes that very clear. And Asaph Hall just down the world by discovering these two moons with a lot of effort, by the way, even with a new telescope. Now, how can that possibly be? Well, obviously, Jonathan Swift didn't know there were two moons of Mars. He was a friend of Herschel and some of these guys. It was just something he put into his little narrative to color his political satire, drawing upon what he probably thought were just ancient legends to be colorful. What he didn't realize, probably, is that those legends were actually eyewitness accounts. And it turns out if you do the calculations, the two moons of Mars would have to be, in order to be visible to the naked eye, that means Mars would be as close as 70,000, 80,000 miles from the Earth. 
rising uh, from the horizon at night about uh, 50 times the size of the moon, causing 85-foot land tides and so forth. And that could very well have to do with much of it may have been the instrument that God used in all kinds of things. But the main point is all calendars change in 701 B.C. The 360-day year by the Romans adds five and a quarter days, which is our three, you know, the year we're familiar with. The Hebrews add uh, six months every 19 years in various ways to bring the mean solar year and the, mean, the lunar years together. And... Uh, uh, all the different, uh, uh, some 14 different calendars all deal with it slightly differently. But it's interesting, something happened in 71 BC to cause the calendars to be adjusted, and the conjecture that the Mars orbit adjustment may be one of the causes. It was interesting when I talked to Asher Kaufman about the temple, that uh, the idea of due east apparently had changed between the first and second temples. That's what creates some of the problems we talked about in the book on the coming temple. But it's also interesting that it occurs at the time of the sundial business. So how did God move the sundial back? I have no idea, but there's all kinds of ways. The precession of the earth could change. That's part of it. That's probably the long day of Joshua. You don't have to stop the earth, slow the earth down to have a long day. You can change the precession accomplish the same thing. It's not obvious until you study it. But, uh, or did God just do it refractively somehow? Could be that simple. It's not a big deal from my point of view. The real issue is, was it a good idea? These 15 years bring nothing but grief. Two years later, Hezekiah has a son by the name of Manasseh. And Hezekiah dies, Manasseh is 12 years old, and he takes over, and he is a piece of work. <laughs> he tears down the altars and puts back up all the idols. He takes Isaiah, and he, according to Talmudic sources and others, he was the one that apparently martyred Isaiah, this revered prophet. And he apparently sawed him in half with a wooden saw. And that's described in the Talmud, and it's alluded to in, a, in Hebrews 11, it would seem. So it's an interesting enigma here about time. The writing of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, when he had been sick, was recovered of his sickness. I said in cutting off my days, I will go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I said I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord in the land of the living. I sh shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. Mine age is departed and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I am cut off like a weaver, uh, like a weaver in my life. He will cut me off with pining sickness and even day, even unto night, wilt thou make an end of me. I am reckoned until morning that like a lion, so shall he break all my bones, that from day, even to night, Wilt thou make an end of me, like a crane or a swallow, so that I uh, did chatter? I did mourn like a dove, mine eyes fail with looking upward, O Lord. I am oppressed, undertake for me. What shall I say? He hath both spoken unto me, and he himself hath done it. I shall go softly all my years in the bitter, bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. So wilt thou restore me and make me to live. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind my back. For Sheol cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate thee, they that go down to the pit cannot hope for thy truth." The living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. The Father to the children shall make known thy truth. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs to the, uh, to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. For Isaiah had said, Let them take a lump of figs, lay it for a plaster upon the boil, and he shall recover. Hezekiah also had said, What is the sign that I shall go up for the house of the Lord? And so on. Now, quite an interesting dirge. Um, but it also reveals the very limited view of death. 
So you and I have, a, have the benefit of much more insight as to what really, you know, Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He was anxious to get out of here. While he's here, he preached Christ. But when time came, he was ready to go. And uh, the insight uh, that we have with death, uh, there's, there's a... The whole limitation of their view of death is, is evident from this passage, this dirge here. But um, our insights are quite different. Jesus brought life and immortality to light in the Gospels. And this is highlighted Second 2 Timothy 1.10. And uh, Jesus freed us from the bondage of death in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And uh, see, death is to be absent from the body, but to be present with the Lord, we find from Second Corinthians 5.8. A whole different uh, uh, complexion here. Okay. I have to share with you one story. I don't think I've ever shared this publicly, but I, I can't help, can't resist mentioning something here. Um, I was raised uh, by foreign-born parents, naturalized as American citizens. Uh, I came very late in my parents' life. My dad was 53 when I was born, and my mom thought she'd already been through a change of life, so I was a shock when I came along. But uh, my dad... Uh, uh, when he was uh, 19, hid under a peasant woman's dress to, on a train to get to Hamburg, then stowed away on a steamer to come to America. Gutsy guy. He was born in 1881, so this was about the turn of the century. Um, but he a man of no education, just a good practical guy who just made it. Um, coming to a strange country, not speak, reading or writing, speaking English, it was gutsy. Gutsy guy. But anyway, uh, so I grew up, uh, my dad was not really old enough to marry a grandfather. And I would see it was quite an age, unusual age difference. Uh, I got an appointment to the Naval Academy, and that was something that meant a lot to him. It blew him away. I mean, to go to college was a big deal in his mind, but the idea of going to the Naval Academy blew him away. And the way the Academy works, um, you don't start in the fall, you start in the, in the summer. In June, you go back for what they call plebe summer. You have three months of indoctrination and stuff to get ready for the brigade when it arrives in the fall. And at the end of plebe summer, there's what they call parents' weekend. That's the last freedom you've got for for the plebe years. We used to do it in the old days. And um, so I went back. I got the appointment. Went back in June to the academy, going through plebe summer. Of course, the big deal was parents' weekend to have my mom and dad come out to the academy. Turned out that summer he had an automobile accident. Uh, he was involved in a head-on collision. And he was uh, about in his early 70s and overweight and, and uh, thrown through the windshield. No one expected him to live. Turned out there wasn't a bone broken, that he was bruised up pretty badly. But uh, uh, family told me that his only dream when he was delirious in the hospital was he wanted to see me graduate. If he just see me graduate. So. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.